welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind. Teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Dave Rogstad continues to recover from an illness, so keep him in your prayers. We look forward to having Dave back soon. On today's podcast, part two of this series on worldview thinking. Uh, Ken, we've been talking about your book, A World of Difference, and this is one of my favorite topics. So, you know, when when you wrote this book, uh, was it 2007, Ken? Uh, Correct. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, I remember. Um, you know, just being part of the the team that got to read it and helped edit and, and go through it. It's just like, wow, this is great stuff. Now, I had read um, when I was a young man, a young Christian, uh, James Sire, uh, yes. Universe Next Door. Yeah, I still have that book. I'm I'm gonna have to go back to that one, but. I remember reading that and, you know, as a young Christian, I knew it was important and it helped me, but I've largely forgotten much of what was there, but I knew it was a, it was a good book. So I like this topic. Yes. Well, I do too. And uh, Sire's book is a very helpful book. It was published by InterVarsity and uh, Sire's, Sire's book had an influence on a lot of evangelicals. One of the one of the early kind of uh, worldview texts, and I certainly quote from him in my own book. Yeah, very, very good, and a very, and again, a very useful idea. As we said in the last program, I, I think to think about a worldview has many benefits. It it allows us, among other things, it allows us to kind of step outside ourselves and say, well, how would a how would a person who holds an Eastern mystical view or a secular atheist viewpoint, how would they view these issues? And and as a Christian, why do I differ? Why do I hold a particular uh, worldview? And as we mentioned earlier as well, um, for whatever reasons, many people have an underdeveloped worldview. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, you know, th- there is a whole... Uh, there's a school that teaches worldview to young people. And I think that that's a very powerful thing that to have your children to grow up within the Christian worldview, uh, a worldview curriculum can be very valuable. All right. Well, we're going to talk about uh, major worldviews out there today and and, uh, ways to evaluate them, but uh, maybe something that could be helpful for people who didn't hear the first podcast, or maybe they did and they forgot, is a definition of a worldview. What exactly are we talking about? Again, if you go back to the German, the Germans have this term Weltanschauung, a big picture view of reality. Uh, to think of a worldview in kind of a, as a conceptual model, a worldview is is our big picture view of, of life in the world. And... Um, you know, we can think about worldviews in a couple different ways. Uh, one way of thinking of a worldview is, again, like a conceptual system where it's a cluster of beliefs. Think of a spider web, a web of beliefs, our, our view of God, our view of the world, knowledge, ethics, human beings. That's a kind of a cluster of these, these big picture ideas. We also can think of worldviews in, in uh, somewhat different terms, we can think of them as as a successive uh, a s- successive events. Uh, the Christian worldview is described in 
creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And then we also mentioned in our previous program, Joe, that you could also think of worldview less in conceptual terms and think of it in more narrative terms. That is, uh, you look at somebody like a C.S. Lewis and a uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, they tell stories. And in Narnia and Middle-earth, they tell you about the world. They tell you about God. They they reveal the fatal flaw of human beings uh, and then tell us about you know, redemption and consummation. You get good and evil in, in Narnia and Middle-earth. Uh, that's kind of a narrative way of, of telling a worldview. And I think all three of them are helpful and meaningful. Hmm. All right. Well, when it comes to the types of worldviews out there today, anybody who lives in a city of any size recognizes that there are people from all over the world now in um, you know major cities in America and other countries. So they know that there are different worldviews, but they may not know what they are. So you can help us to figure some of these out. Yes, I. there clearly are people who look at the world and interpret the world in fundamentally different ways. Um, here, I think immediately of a secular world. Uh, we call that naturalism. Uh, atheism uh, isn't in and of itself a worldview. It, it's a major part because a major part of any worldview is what's your view of God? Well, the secularists say he doesn't exist. So that's that's going to that's going to be a major part of their kind of metaphysics, their view of reality, if you will. But uh, it goes beyond that. And so we call that secular worldview naturalism. And it, essentially the, the the belief that the natural, material, physical world is all there is. There's no, there's no uh, souls. There's no afterlife of, of immortality. That's a, that's a major worldview. Now, in terms of numbers, uh, of the major worldviews, it's probably has the least number of, of people who affirm it. However, uh, these are usually people that have real influence. And so the naturalist worldview is found among the intelligentsia in many respects of the West. Um, you know, in terms of America and Europe, you have a lot of people who hold a naturalist worldview. And many of them, by the way, Joe, are within the STEM disciplines, mm -hmm. science, technology, um, you know, medicine, uh, engineering, uh, mathematics. So uh, I think probably only 10 to 15% of the world's population might fit into the worldview category of naturalism. But they're movers and shakers, and they're very committed to their worldview, and they're very suspicious of other worldviews. And one could even say maybe especially a biblical or a, a Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm. Would you say someone like a Carl Sagan would have held to a naturalistic worldview? The cosmos is all there is, uh, ever was or ever will be. And then you have uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's kind of in that same vein today. Exactly. And both of these, uh, you know, Sagan and, and Dyson 
both of them are naturalists. Both of them are scientists. Both of them uh, have a, a very articulate way of kind of, of introducing people to science. They're both kind of uh, popularists. That That is, uh, they know their stuff so well, they can communicate it to non-scientists like me. Uh, they're also a very engaging people, and that draws them in. And and both of them hold a, a, a naturalist worldview. Now, I critique them at various points. There are times where I think um, a little philosophical training could help in terms of the way they look at other particular worldviews. But that's exactly right. And you know, when we look at some of the science leaders. They, some of them hold a naturalistic worldview. That doesn't mean all scientists do. But I think that there is a tendency, in, particularly in the Western world, for scientists to gravitate more toward a, a naturalist worldview. Again, not exclusively. Some studies indicate that maybe as much as 40% of scientists as a whole hold a theistic worldview. And of course, Hugh Ross makes the point, and I think he's right, that depending on the discipline, uh, that number goes up or goes down. Uh, in the area, for example, of mathematicians, there tend to be a lot of theists. Hmm. Uh, you know, a, a, another field in terms of, uh, you know, people who are experts on the brain uh, tend to be a lot of theists there. Uh, but when it comes to biology and other particular areas, then the number uh, drops. But what's, what's interesting here is that while naturalism may be the smallest worldview in terms of sheer numbers of people, uh, they have some heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, and the reality is, Joe, that there are some very bright atheists. They're not, you know, some of them, I think, are not very uh, formidable. I would even say that about some that are in the category of the new atheist, but there are atheists who who are are very robust in their thinking, and uh, again, they their naturalistic worldview is very different than the Christian worldview. Hmm. Uh, just another question on naturalism: um, How about the term materialism or secular humanism? Are those also in that category? Yeah, very good question. Um, let's let's deal with materialism. I I think it would be accurate to say, Joe, that many many atheists or many secularists are materialists, but not all of them. Um, you know, you could be an atheist, for example, who believes that uh, you know mental. The mental reality, conceptual thinking, uh, that maybe that emerged out of the physical. So uh, many atheists are materialists or physicalists, but not exclusively when you get down to the technical details. The word secular, I think, is a helpful and meaningful term. Uh, a secularist is a, is a person who doesn't have a supernatural belief or a belief in God. And uh, so th those terms are important. Uh, a secular humanist, um, I think maybe the way to understand that term is 
you know, whatever your worldview is, whether you affirm God or you deny God, most of us have to ask the question, do we have an ultimate concern? Mm. That's, I mean, that's one way of thinking about a worldview. What's your ultimate concern? Uh, is it God? Is it man? You know, what? what is that ultimate concern? Um, in my book, uh, A World of Difference, I, I raise uh, various people in the 20th century. I, I look at Adolf Hitler. Uh, I look at, you know, Albert Einstein. Uh, and I, I raise the question, what, what was their worldview? And how did their worldview influence uh, the kinds of ideas that, you know, that they had? So usually a, a secular humanist, humanist is going to say, human beings are of ultimate value. And my worldview places them at the center with, with uh, dignity and importance. Mm. All right. How about another uh, major worldview? I think another one that that comes along uh, is pantheistic monism. Um, you know, if you think about Eastern religion, so now we're thinking about Hinduism, we're thinking about Buddhism, we're thinking about Jainism, uh, we're thinking about, uh, you know, some of the other Asian religions. Um, that kind of that kind of Eastern pantheistic idea, they have a particular view of God, but that that concept of God is very different from a theistic God. You know, if, if we were to look at Christian theism for a moment, a Christian theist would say that God is an infinite, eternal, immutable, morally perfect, and tripersonal spiritual being. So we have the Trinity, we have one God in essence, three in personhood, but he has these remarkable qualities, infinite, boundless, no limitations, uh, eternal, uh, no limitations in terms of time, immutable. This is a being that doesn't change. Joe, the God of, the, the God of Christian theism is in a different category than any other creature. Um, God does not change and and god is morally perfect god is complete in utter goodness and of course we could also say of the god that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe well when we think about a pantheistic uh view of god we come to a, a very different perspective um what would a pantheist say about god uh they would say that all reality is one. This is the monism part. All is God and God is all. And they would say that uh, that all reality, the world, everything that exi that exists is one, and that one thing is is God. But in a, in pantheism, God's not personal. Uh, God's even beyond the categories of morality. I mean, that's that's a very different way of thinking about God, a God that you don't think about in personal terms, that you don't think of in moral terms. That's of the whole world is God. You're God. I'm God. Every reality is 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 one thing. That's certainly a concept of God, but it is so very different than 
our concept of of a biblical theism is, is the idea that they're trying to connect with nature and everything around us so all of reality just kind of connects together naturally is that yes. kind of what they're getting at yes and you know from a christian point of view we have uh we, we have unity and diversity by the way that's where we get our word universe unity and diversity we, you know there there's one universe but then there are many parts of that universe and there are uh you know impersonal physical objects but then there are persons so within a a biblical perspective a christian perspective there there is unity and diversity within pantheism all reality is an interconnected and undifferentiated one so all reality is one thing and that one thing is god and we're part of that that one of course you then have many questions that arise uh if we're all one um how, why did and and if one is beyond the categories of personhood and morality then why do we have persons in the world and why do we have uh these critical distinctions about morality so it's it's a very different way of of thinking not just about god but about the world about ethics about human beings and again, that gives us a helpful point about worldviews. When you have worldview differences, Joe, you have category differences. You know, think of, think of Christianity. Um, you got Lutherans and you got Catholics and you've got Orthodox. You got the three branches of Christendom, right? Uh, there are differences among Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox. They differ about the authority of the Bible and the authority of the church, and they have differing ideas about how faith and good works work together, and they have questions about whether one should ever have devotion to the Virgin Mary and the saints. So these are some of the differences within the branches of Christendom, but they all have the same basic view of God. And of course, now I'm speaking of the conservative or traditional branches. You have uh, more progressive or liberal. And again, by liberal, I don't mean politics, but I mean theology. But among the conservative theological branches of Christendom, we have the same basic God. It's the, the God, uh, the triune God of Christianity. We have the same view of Christ, that God, is, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature and has now become the God-man. So we, in many respects, in I think most respects, we have the same worldview. Our differences are important, but they're not in the, they're not in the area of a category difference. I mean, in, in Hinduism, uh, and in and in Buddhism and Jainism, you have a, a category difference when it comes to their view of God and their view of the world. Now, let me show you how I think this is practical. Um, and and again, you know, I used to teach philosophy full time, and I would typically have American pragmatic students, and some of times they'd say, "Why do I need to know this?" How is this going to help me? How am I going to take a class? Um, and in, in some respects, I kind of had to try to win them over 
and show them that what they were doing in my class had had real value. Here's a practical example, Joe. Um, if I were to go back 60 years from today, uh, right around the time I was being born, right around the time, Joe, you were being born, I think if you looked at the political system in our country uh, back then, let's say 1960, um, you know, so that's 60 years, 62 years ago. Um, I think the differences between Democrats and Republicans, they were real. They were important. So in the 1960 election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, they had differing ideas about economics. They had differing ideas about some of the subtle ways they were going to approach foreign policy uh, relating particularly to the Cold War, the Soviet Union. Uh, there were differing ideas, uh, again, about uh, political socioeconomic issues. I think today, move forward from 1960 to 2022, I think the differences between Democrats and Republicans has, has grown deep and wide. And I think some of the reason is not politics, not just economics, but now worldview. Mm. I think there are now worldview differences. It's hard, it's hard to build common ground. It, it's hard to find unity when you have category differences. So I, I think when it comes to the issue of marriage and, and abortion, we're starting to see within our political system uh, a deep divide. And I think I think some of it is because there are worldview differences. I, I think if you went back to JFK and Richard Nixon in 1960, um, uh, Kennedy, of course, was Catholic and um, uh, Nixon came from uh, came out of kind of an Anabaptist uh, tradition, the the radical reformation. Uh, I'll think of the denomination here in a moment, but they shared the same worldview. Now, whether whether Nixon and Kennedy were devout in their, you know, their understanding of Christianity is is a question people can debate, but they shared many of the same values. I think to think in terms of marriage is to rethink the idea that marriage is between one man and one woman. Or, or to think that human beings in the womb are either not human beings or are not persons, those are worldview differences. Mm. So part of what part of this clash, right? We we live in a world. I mean, think of the last couple years during the pandemic, protests. I, I was thinking to myself in 2020, has there ever been a year quite like this? The only one I could think of in my my life was 1968, when the Vietnam War was raging and uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated and America seemed like it was starting to come apart. Well, that's the way I thought in 2020. Now, uh, I think, again, the pandemic played a part in that. But th this is a practical reason why I think you should want to learn about worldviews. It might help you understand what's happening in your country. Mm, yeah, uh, there's some other major worldviews I know you want to get to. But uh, here's a, a question. 
we talked earlier about naturalism and it seems to have an outsized influence even though the participants are not that great. I think you said 10%. Uh, could this be uh, an instance where their influence has uh, shifted people's thinking on issues that you just referred to, uh, life in the womb, and um, I forgot what the other one was, but things like that that are in the culture today that uh, we seem so divided over, but that people did not seem uh, divided on them, even if they had different uh, political affiliations 60 years ago. Yes, uh, let me, you, you mentioned uh, Carl Sagan um, and another science. Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Let me put another uh, science secular thinker in there, Peter Singer. Mm. Uh, Peter Singer is a, a bioethicist at Princeton University. Now, let me tell you about Princeton University. That was the university that people like Charles Hodge taught at and, and Benjamin Warfield. Princeton was uh, Princeton Seminary, which still exists. That was uh, the seminary of, uh, you know, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, uh, very conservative Protestant Christianity. Uh, Peter Singer is now one of their significant faculty members again, a bioethicist. Uh, Singer doesn't think babies in the womb are, are fully human, and he doesn't think that they ought to have the same rights as, as people who, who have been born. In, in fact, he even thinks that farm animals are, have a, an awareness, self-awareness or consciousness much sooner than babies do. So their value is outweighs that of a, of an infant. In fact, he has said that he thought that parents ought to have two years to decide whether they want to euthanize their children. Hmm. Uh, he's a, he's an ardent atheist, um, very articulate, and and if I'm going to give him some credit here, even though his views are fundamentally different than my own as a Christian. Uh, I think Singer is, I think he really is trying to uh, set forth a second, a purely secular worldview. Um, he's trying to bring his ethics in accord with his metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I applaud him for that. Um, and I think he's very honest. Now, of course, he has a hard time living out that worldview because, uh, you know, he believes that when uh, older people uh, suffer from dementia, then um, maybe we ought to accept active euthanasia, you know, to, to put it, you know, crassly, maybe we ought to pull the plug on them. Uh, maybe society shouldn't be obligated to care for people who are no longer there. They're no longer self-aware. Well, that happened to his mother, and he couldn't pull the plug. Uh, now you could say, well, that what hypocrisy? Well, that could be, but I think a I think a secular worldview, Joe, is very hard to live out. I mean, I mean to say that the material physical universe is all there is, and that uh, death will mean uh, no consciousness, no soul, no afterlife, no ultimate morality. That's a that's a quite a worldview to embrace and, and to try to live out. So 
yeah, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to know the exact numbers, but uh, the Pew Report and, and some other uh, organizations that, you know, uh, try to chart uh, people's affiliation in terms of their views of reality, they might say that uh, somewhere between 10, maybe 15% at the highest, maybe 5% at the lowest. But uh, though secularism or the naturalist worldview is, has the least number of people, I think per capita, it probably has the most bang for the buck. Mm. Yeah. You know, a few years ago, I was... Uh looking up a singer for something. And I, I read that he is one of the most sought after commencement speakers uh, in America. So yeah. what does that tell you? People are graduating from colleges and they want singer to come in and address them. I think that tells you a whole lot about uh, what our, what our worldview is. And, and again, he talks a lot about animals. He says that to think that human beings are exceptional creatures. I mean, that's something RTV talks a lot about. We talk about human beings are made in the image of God. They're exceptional creatures. We're, we're not different from the apes or from the bipedal primates merely in degree, we're different in kind. Species uh, uh, Singer says that's that's the uh, that's speciesism. That's a that's like a racism where humans are are valued above the animal kingdom. And uh, I think, wow, that's mm -hmm. a very that's very different than what I read in the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. But again, Peter Singer is articulate. He's driven. I remember when Fuzrana and I put, put uh, together the book uh, Humans 2.0 about transhumanism. One of the sections of the book that I wrote was um, identifying, you know, some of the top the top 10 humanists in the world. Uh, now, there are Christian transhumanists, but many of them are secular. And I remember telling Fuzz that one thing that hit me when I read about these transhumanists, how committed they were to their worldview, to their secular worldview. Um, so, you know, when you say uh, that, you know, I think there are a lot more people into Eastern mystical religion. I mean, you may have a billion people in India alone who affirm some kind of, of Eastern religion. Uh, then, then in terms of, you know, Christians, there may be two and a half billion Christians in the world, close to two billion Muslims in the world. Uh, well, you know, if you start thinking about those worldview categories, you get you start getting closer to, you know, seven and a half, eight billion people in the world. Uh, secularistic naturalism has probably the lowest number but again, they're deeply committed and they have deep influence in the STEM disciplines. Mm. Um, and and I, I also would simply make this point that uh, one of the questions I had when I researched the secular transhumanists is I, I thought to myself, am I as committed to my worldview as they are to theirs? So the, this is meaningful, and I think in terms of understanding, I mean, I, you know, in, in America, we have a lot of tension. Uh, it, it seems that civility is at, on a low ebb. Uh, I think that's a fair thing to say. 
I think worldview thinking can actually help even in terms of civility in this sense, Joe, that I can step outside myself and say, look, let me try to understand why a, a pantheist would view the world this way or why a, a naturalist would view human beings this way. I, I think it can help us. Uh, you know, we're probably never going to agree but we can understand the differences and we can have some kind of dialogue. You mentioned transhumanism. The question comes to mind again, for people listening to this podcast who are familiar with RTB and, and uh, what we try to do. Uh, it seems that there's an opportunity there for Christians to find a common ground with the transhumanist who's not a, a Christian in that they are trying to improve humanity because they think this is it, you know, uh, once we're gone, uh, you know, uh, it's all over. So they're trying to uh, prolong life, make it last forever, if that's possible. So I guess there's a way to kind of meet them. It's like, what you're talking about, we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are your comments on that? I think that's that's right on target. Uh, you know, what, what first brought my interest in transhumanism, probably 10 years ago, was the idea that that transhumanists were looking for some kind of hope. I mean, naturalism, again, if we interpret it as the material physical universe is all there is, and human beings are purely mortal creatures, then there's no life after death. Um, so how do you find meaning and purpose for the human, in, in light of the human predicament as a naturalist? Well, maybe we can stretch lifespans, or maybe we can eliminate death altogether. That's that's the goal for Google, by the way. Um, you know, I they're looking for how can how can mortal human beings have real genuine hope and purpose? Everybody needs an eschatology, Joe. Every I think we are created, of course. I don't think we're purely evolved creatures, you know, from from uh, you know com complex naturalistic evolution. I think we're creatures, and we we have a, a need for purpose and hope. I, I think we've seen it during the pandemic. Um, I mean, look at how the world's been brought to its knees by a virus. Um, and and look at how governments have reacted to it. I mean, it, it's it was I think it's comparable uh, to the depression in the 1930s, where governments were, what do we do? Um, well, everybody needs hope. Everybody needs purpose. Everybody needs something to live for. I think transhumanism picks up on those ideas. And but see, I think this is a greater confirmation of what the Bible teaches, that human beings are not merely mortal creatures, that we do need hope. And of course, I think about hope incarnate, Jesus Christ, uh, Matthew uh, eleven twenty eight. He says these words, come to me, all you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. I mean, think, think about what that Think about the utter profundity in that statement. Jesus tells all other human beings, if you come to me, 
I will give you rest and peace for your soul. I mean, that's a greater claim than any psychologist, mm. any philosopher has ever made that if you come to me, I will give you peace that transcends anything the world can offer. Joe, there are a lot of people in light of the pandemic that need rest and peace. And um, so, yes, I think transhumanism, uh, again, the idea that uh, maybe we can we can transform, we can evolve human beings uh, to a place where uh, they can have a different state of reality. Um, and again, this relates to things like technology and, and the sciences. And uh, so naturalistic people are connected to that. And, and I think many atheists would say, look, we don't believe in God. Um, therefore, we're asking what can science do? to kind of improve the human condition. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ken, another major worldview system is postmodernism. Now, some people may have an idea about that, and they see that first word, post. So does this come after modernism? How do we, how do we think that through? It's like I, someone might say, I missed modernism. So what's postmodernism? <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well, I, I think we can we can think both philosophically and historically about postmodernism. Uh, in fact, we can we can begin with pre-modernism. I think Christianity is pre-modern. Uh, Christianity, along with Judaism in the ancient world, uh, they believe that that meaning and purpose are found in God. Uh, that the human condition was intended, uh, God created human beings, so they're going to find their ultimate fulfillment in through a relationship with God. So meaning and, and truth and knowledge are found in God, are found in Christ, are, are found in fulfilling your function as creatures who are created yet fallen and need redemption. Now, uh, that pre-modern view is going to dominate uh, late antiquity, so we're thinking near the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's going to conquer the pagan philosophies. Um, you know, by 500 AD, Christianity had basically um, transformed all the pagan nations. They had become Christian. Hmm. That extended through the Middle Ages, but at about the time of the Enlightenment, so now we're thinking about 1700, a, a new movement began. I'm going to call it modernism, not pre-modern like Christianity, but modernism. And that is that truth and meaning and purpose are not found in God. They're found in science. They're found in nature. They're found in human beings. So, so the Enlightenment the initial Enlightened movement has a lot of theists. As the Enlightenment expands and grows, it becomes more and more secular. So if you think of pre-modern, truth, meaning, and purpose are found in God. Well, by the time of the Enlightenment, we have modernism. Truth, meaning, and purpose are found in science, in human beings. Postmodernism comes along a couple centuries later. Um, now, of course, 
you can think about these ideas that they're they're all around, but but they don't really become uh, you know real formulated in such a way that you can call it an ism. So postmodernism has been around a long time, but some people, Joe, would place it right about the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm. where people start to look at, well, you know, uh, meaning, purpose, and significance. Uh, I'm very suspicious that that can be found in God, but I'm equally suspicious that it can be found in science or nature. What 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 is it? I mean, science is a very powerful discipline. It's a very influential way of knowing things about the natural world. But science can't tell you whether something is good. Science can't tell you whether something, you know, should be valued. Uh, Science and technology might be able to tell you, inform your capacity to create atomic weapons. It can't tell you whether you ought to use them. Well, uh, postmodernism says that, well, if truth, meaning, and purpose can't be found in God, and if it can't be found in nature or human beings, maybe it doesn't exist at all. Maybe there's really no way of knowing the foundation for truth, meaning, and purpose. So there's a a, a radical skepticism. And uh, now, of course, I'm thinking here uh, in terms of a secular postmodernism. There are Christians who who say, look, I don't agree with all of the postmodern view, but I think some of their ideas are right. And and you know what? I think that's a valuable point, Joe. Uh, Some of what modernism taught was right, and some of what postmodernism taught was right. But of course, uh, they've gone much further than uh, just having minor differences. There are worldview differences. And so Postmodernism has presented us with a lot of skepticism about truth and about morality and about beauty. You know, you think of those, you think of what Christians call the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty are characteristics of God. And because God created the world, truth, goodness, and beauty have imbued into the world. And so you and I encounter truth, goodness, and beauty. I would suggest that when you see it, get closer to it, because the more you have of truth, goodness, and beauty, the more fulfillment you'll have because you're getting closer to God. Well, um, the postmodernists would say, look, um, uh, you can't know ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, You can't have an objective view. Maybe it's all relativistic. It's just what Joe thinks is true, good, and beautiful or what Ken thinks is true, good, and beautiful. Uh, and maybe all of it's really about power. It's it's not about truth. Uh, language becomes equivocal. I mean, remember from a biblical point of view, from a pre-modern biblical Judeo-Christian view, I mean, God creates human beings in his image and he reveals his commandments and they're written on stone. Language, words, uh, we're able to, because we're exceptional creatures, we can blend letters into sounds that convey ideas. Mortimer Adler says this 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 capacity to to read, to write, to be literate. He says this is a very complex 
capacity that only human beings have. The animals don't have it. But then he says, uh, your average seven-year-old has it down pretty well. Mm. I mean, human beings are different. They're, they are uh, in a different category. They're exceptional. Uh, the postmodernists say, wait a second here. Um, maybe lang even language is equivocal. You have to deconstruct it. And oftentimes when you do deconstruct it, you don't find truth, goodness, and beauty. You find power. Mm. People are trying to, you know, everybody's got an agenda. Well, that's a lot to say about these particular worldviews. But I actually think that tells you a lot about the world in which we live right now. Yeah. Hmm. Ken, where does relativism fall in in uh, what you've been talking about so far, or is it its own thing? I think that relativism has been around for a very long time. It, what's interesting about studying the history of philosophy is that I think that postmodern relativism or post the post-Christian society, you could find a lot of that uh, in uh in the time of ancient Athens with, with Socrates, there, there was a group of thinkers called the Sophists, and uh, they didn't think you could, you could discover ultimate truth and goodness and beauty. They held very relativistic views, and, and they all often thought it's about power. Uh, you know, Socrates thinks he's getting truth, goodness, and beauty. But it's really all about getting your people elected and having your influence in the world. So, so these ideas have existed for a long time. To, to, to address your question as directly as I can, I think, relativist, I think relativism as it relates to truth, goodness, and beauty is a unique feature of postmodernism. Um, we can't know God. And and sci even science cannot get us at truth. We're we're finite creatures. We have limitations and we have boundaries, and therefore we can't really know ultimate truth. We can have ideas about it. We really can't know ultimate goodness. Uh, even even again, language only gets us so far. Uh, now, uh, recognize that that even Christians could say, look. Um, I agree. God, uh, though God does exist, and human beings are made in the image of God, so I don't, I don't accept these, these strong views of relativistic idea. But even a Christian could say, "Look, I'm, a, I am a finite creature. There are limitations and boundaries that I have." I mean, when God reveals Himself, He has to, as Calvin said, you know, He has to kind of engage in baby talk. He has to, He has to teach me about the mysteries of God's nature. So, you know, Christians accept the idea that there are limitations and there are boundaries, but we believe in absolute truth. We believe in objective truth. We believe in absolute and objective morality. And we believe that language isn't perfect, but it's reliable. And it can convey to us ideas that are meaningful. Um, so relativism has a long history, but I think it, it has a, a, a it fits well into the postmodern explanation. Yeah. All right. Well, Ken, there's uh, more material to discuss. Uh, I don't know if you want to 
pick it up a little bit more or save some for the next podcast? How are you feeling? Well, I, I think what I'd like to say is this, Joe, that, you know, when we think when we think about worldviews, kind of looking at these two shows, uh, our previous one and this one, I, you know, I, I think this idea of thinking worldviewishly is very valuable. Um, uh, all of us, all of us have a worldview. All of us have largely adopted our worldview. And, you know, sometimes you change, uh, you know, you grow up, you uh, have different experiences, you have educational experiences, uh, you suffer, you have all kinds of realities that enter into your life and maybe you change worldviews. Um, you know, Christians sometimes change branches of, of Christianity. Sometimes people are Protestant and they become Catholic or they're Catholic and they become Orthodox. Uh, but sometimes people affirm Christianity, then give it up, and they become secularists, or they become postmodernists. Of course, it's also true, just as we saw in the first 500 years of Christianity, it basically swallowed paganism. All of those nations that were pagan, you know, the, the German nations that uh, conquered Rome, uh, sacked Rome in 410, uh, the Visigoths, um, these paganism was dominated by by Christianity. Um, but I think the way of understanding these things can be very helpful in terms of a, of a worldview. I, I think it can help you understand maybe where our country is moving, maybe why there is as much division as there is. Um, you know, it, again, my uh, my parents, they were not uh, formally educated people. They they were teenagers during the Great Depression. They grew up in the Appalachian nation of West Virginia. Uh, but my parents had really bright minds and they cared deeply about our country. I, I like to say my parents were the most patriotic people I've ever known. They wanted to vote. They wanted to make a difference. Uh, one of the reasons why they're called the greatest generation. Um, uh, but you know, I, I remember my parents uh, teaching me about politics and talking to me about voting. And uh, they had strong views about Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy. And um, I was exposed to kind of political ideas uh, from my parents. Uh, but I think worldview thinking has helped me look even beyond that. Why do people have these political categories? What's really at stake? So I think that this is a very important point. I uh, I wrote the book, A World of Difference. It was published in 20, 2007. Um, you know, I've written a few books and sometimes people will ask me, well, what's your, what's your favorite book or what's your most influential book? Um, that's sometimes hard to answer, but I, I think that this book, A World of Difference, is a very, a very important topic. It addresses a very important topic. And I, and I think it's very meaningful to people who would listen to a podcast like this. It gets to the issues of, you know, from an RTB point of view, I think, I think my contribution as a staff scholar at RTB is largely to, to help people to think from a philosophical worldview. I mean, science is a powerful enterprise, but 
it was a worldview that gave birth to science. Mm -hmm. And science is filled with philosophical and worldview implications. So I'm I'm hoping we'll have some people who the things we've said they'll say we've we've heard this uh, on uh, straight thinking before we like it we appreciate it but there may be others Joe who may want to go out to Amazon or maybe even better yet go to go to our store here at Reasons and get a copy of a World of Difference because uh, it's not because I'm a great writer but. I think A World of Difference is a really good book because the topic is so darn important. Yeah, I totally agree and enjoyed reading the book. Highly recommend it. You can go to our store, reasons.org, and search A World of Difference and find it there. Now, just a, uh, another comment on the importance of worldview thinking, Ken. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, obviously. You know that. And there are people of from all around the world uh, in, in a city of that size. But, you know, as a kid, you're really in your neighborhood mostly. So you kind of know everybody around there. But I think once I went to college, went to the university, then I really saw a lot of people who just looked different and even dressed differently. Yeah. And it was around that time that I started thinking worldviewishly. I may not have had the that word in mind, but the concept was there. So... If people uh, have their own students, uh, you know, and they're wondering about them as they go off to university or, or wherever they are, or even for the benefit of someone who, you know, just has a lot of different looking neighbors and uh, different sounding neighbors, they speak different languages. It's good to know about worldviews. What do you what, what's your comment on that, Kim? I think that's exactly right. And you know, I I was born in Los Angeles, and I grew up in uh, L.A. suburbs my entire life. I've lived in Southern California. Uh, Joe, I remember teaching at uh, Los Angeles City College in the 1990s, and um, uh, I remember how diverse the student population was, uh, not just racially, but but religiously. I, I remember a particular student and his name was Muhammad Islam. And I, I, I kind of teased him. I said, are you a Muslim? Um, <laughs> but I, I began to see that, wow, um, I have an abundance of people in my class and some of them are from South Asia. Uh, you know, some are from the Middle East. Um, some are from South America. And they not only bring uh, their culture, but they brought their ideas. And I thought, um, I thought, wow, this is a, this is really a collection of worldviews that I'm encountering here. So you know, many people think that Southern California is one of the most diverse places now in the world. I mean, if I wrote a book like God Among Sages. 60, 70 years ago, Joe, I'd have to go overseas mm. to talk to a Muslim, to talk to a Hindu, to to talk to somebody who embraces Confucianism. Not anymore. Um, we live in a smaller world. And in America, you know, you, if you have kids and they're on a soccer team, you, you may have a very diverse soccer team in terms not only of ethnicity, but in terms of religiosity and worldview. All right. Well, we can't uh, overstress the importance of worldview thinking. And again, just to recommend Ken's book, A World of Difference, uh, pick it up and read it. It's very readable, by the way. 
we're going to be talking about this some more on the next uh, podcast. So be sure to uh, join us for that. In the meantime, uh, keep those comments coming in. Many of you have been reaching Ken on social media, and we sure appreciate that. And we want to give you a shout out when you uh, send those comments in. So here are a few more. Uh, here's one. Ken, I love hearing that your books are being translated into other languages. I'm so glad it's happening. I wish without a doubt could also be translated into Chichawa, native Malawian language. Joseph Zafnath Paniya, Leilangwe Malawi. Wow. So here we're talking about diversity and, and you know, yeah. I mean, somebody... did, did, I mean, you you helped edit my book uh, without a doubt. Uh, did you ever think that book would end up in Africa? Mm, I mean, yeah. wow. Just goes to show where we are in today's uh, digital age. Here's another comment, Ken. Your books are such a valuable resource, as well as strong and motivating validations for faith. Thanks, Ken, and Lord bless you, Jim Reverts. If I have that person in mind, he's a longtime uh, uh, fan of RTV and yeah. uh, does his own fine work. Thank you, Jim. Uh, here's another one. Ken, I just got finished reading Seven Truths That Changed the World. It is great and more timely than ever. The chapter on creation and the climate discussion is so prescient. Uh, Donna Henderson. Thank you, Donna. Well, people are reading your books, Ken, so it's uh, nice to see that. It is, and we I, I like your comment. We want to give them a shout out that, yeah. you know, we sure appreciate them listening. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that some of my books have been helpful to them. Wonderful. All right. We'll keep those... Uh, Comments uh, coming in. Uh, again, you can reach Ken on his uh, Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. That will wrap it up for Ken Samples. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.